Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, an update on the COVID-19 pandemic as public health concerns evolve into culture wars with school officials under attack. President Biden has dropped in the polls for his handling of the pandemic, and he announces new COVID measures today. Our guest is Dr. David Hammerstein, Distinguished Professor of Public Health at the City University of New York and a lecturer in medicine at Harvard Medical School. And no doubt, the climate catastrophe is upon us. And Peterman, Executive Director of the Global Justice Ecology Project, joins us on their work protecting forests and opposing genetically engineered trees. And legal scholar and attorney Marjorie Cohn joins us to discuss and give analysis on the legal threat to reproductive rights of women. Um, we are now going to go actually to a clip on, uh, that gives us some idea of what uh, President Biden may be presenting today on his Talk to the Nation on COVID-19. We want to turn now to President Biden's new plan to try and tackle the COVID pandemic. CBS's Weijia Jiang joins us now from the White House. Good evening, Weijia. So what are we learning? What's new in this plan? Oh, good evening, Nora. White House officials say what's new is a target on private sector businesses and schools that could require new mandates for vaccines and making testing more accessible. He'll also announce measures to ensure that kids are adequately protected in the classrooms and there will be new safety guidelines depending on whether you are vaccinated or not. CBS News has also learned that the president will raise the issue of COVID vaccines on a global scale with other world leaders when they meet at the United Nations General Assembly later this month. Yeah, I mean, you see that the president's approval rating is falling. He's staked his presidency on trying to contain this pandemic. Is that why we're hearing from him now? Well, the White House certainly knows this is a pivotal moment because those ratings fell for the first time on his handling of the pandemic since he took office. This week also marks back to school for millions of children across the country, many of whom cannot get vaccinated. The spike in pediatric hospitalizations in recent months has alarmed parents and COVID task force officials warn more kids are going to get sick as long as the virus spreads. The president is also worried about the economy. In fact, just last week, he blamed the Delta variant for a weaker than expected jobs report. Nora. All right. Weijia Zhang at the White House. Thank you. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. Dozens of foreigners, including U.S. citizens, left on a Qatari charter flight from Kabul airport in what is the first such flight out of the country since the U.S. and NATO troops left Afghanistan late last month. Qatari Special Envoy Mutlak bin Majid al-Qatani called it a historic day. We're not speaking about evacuation. We're speaking about the free passage 
and this is not the evacuation anymore. I think we want people to feel that this is normal. So I think this is today we see a free passage, a free movement of passengers, foreigners and locals and with valid passport, valid documentations. And this, I think this is what we should be talking about. So yes, there are some Americans, there are some Westerns. And I think should be, we should be happy to see something like this. A senior U.S. diplomat speaking anonymously said two very senior Taliban officials helped facilitate the departure. President Biden will outline a six-pronged federal effort to boost COVID-19 vaccinations in an attempt to curb the surging Delta variant of the coronavirus that is killing thousands of people each week. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said Biden will encourage vaccine mandates for workforces and schools. So he's going to outline the next phase in the f- in the fight and against the virus and what that looks like, including measures to work with the public and private sector, building on the steps that we've already announced, the steps we've taken over the last few months, requiring more vaccinations, boosting important testing measures and more, uh, making it safer for kids to go to school, all at a time when the American people are listening. Again, this will be six steps that will work to be implemented over the months ahead. The Los Angeles School Board is expected to vote at a special meeting this afternoon to require all eligible students 12 years and older to take a coronavirus vaccination in order to attend in-person classes. LAUSD is the nation's second largest school district. School board member Tanya Ortiz Franklin said LAUSD already has approved a vaccination mandate for teachers and staff. She told CNN requiring student vaccinations would make schools even safer. Cases are on the rise and children are at risk from the Delta variant in ways we didn't see last semester. And our responsibility to children and our communities is their safety and well-being. We have done uh, air filtration upgrades. We've done masking. We're doing weekly testing. We're doing all we possibly can up and until the vaccine. After today, I anticipate and I uh, join, I hope my colleagues will join me, um, that we will have the safest standards. Ortiz Franklin said eligible students who don't take the vaccination will be enrolled in independent study for the spring semester. Vice President Kamala Harris came home to the Bay Area to campaign with Governor Newsom, urging defeat of the recall effort against him. Ballots must be cast or mailed by September 14th. Catherine Monahan reports. Vice President Kamala Harris joined Governor Newsom in San Leandro to address a union crowd. She focused on Democratic Party issues and cast the recall election as part of a nationwide right-wing attack on women's rights and voting access. They wouldn't be trying to recall him but for the fact that he has always stood for reproductive rights. They wouldn't be trying to recall him except they know he stands for our dreamers and our farm workers. These are the issues that are at play. They wouldn't be trying to recall him except that they know he is a national leader on one of the greatest threats to our democracy right now, which is these blatant attacks on voting rights. The recall effort, which, according to the California Department of Finance, is costing taxpayers $276 million, is funded largely by conservative donors. 
I'm Catherine Monaghan in San Leandro. Former President Trump is claiming the recall election is probably rigged, with indications that Governor Newsom and Democrats may be turning out the Democratic voters and the numbers they'll need. Trump appeared on the right-wing network Newsmax to complain about mail-in ballots and to falsely claim the election will be rigged. It's a reprise of Trump's continued false claim that he really won the 2020 presidential election. A Texas death row inmate has won a reprieve from execution for killing a convenience store worker during a 2004 robbery. The U.S. Supreme Court blocked last night's lethal injection of John Henry Ramirez after his attorney argued the state was violating his religious freedom by not letting his pastor lay hands on him at the time of his lethal injection. In its brief order, the court directed its clerk to establish a briefing schedule so Ramirez's case could be argued in October or November. I'm Eileen Alfandari for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, just a a little horse uh, today. Across the United States, masks and vaccines designated to protect against COVID-19 are now at the center of new culture wars. And increasingly, it seems that school boards are the new battleground. Some parents have been showing up to school board meetings in droves to oppose mask mandates and vaccinations. School board members have been intimidated and threatened for supporting COVID-19 safety precautions. Students in some school districts have even been walking out of class to protest mask mandates. And teachers in other school districts, some of them have refused to get vaccinated. At least 13 employees of the Miami-Dade County Public Schools have died from complications of COVID-19 since August 16th, this according to NPR. Those who died include teachers, school bus drivers, a security worker, and a cafeteria manager. Um, School Several school districts are now considering max vaccine mandates for teachers and staff, including those in Los Angeles and other major cities. And um, breaking news, the Los Angeles Unified School District, they are considering a vaccine uh, mandate. Now, there is a growing anti-vax movement, um, in part fueled by Donald Trump's upcoming Liberty Tour featuring anti-vaxxers. There are also several U.S. states and territories that have not implemented mask mandates as of now, including major ones like Florida, New Jersey, North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Texas, Virginia, and several others. In a growing number of states, the Delta surge of COVID-19 is forcing hospitals to plan for or implement rationing of intensive care units of ICU beds. Alabama, Georgia, Texas, Florida, and Arkansas have less than 10% left of their ICU bed capacity. This according to data from the Department of Health and Human Services. Let us go now to see how uh, that is playing out in the state of Kentucky. A clip here from CNN. Vera Middleton was so sick, doctors considered putting her on a ventilator. She refused, opting instead to pray. God has brought me where I am right now, and I'll praise him from now on. 
she's getting everything but the ventilator and improving. The 66-year-old great-grandmother from the small town of Olive Hill, Kentucky, says she and her husband talked about getting vaccinated but decided against it. Do you have any idea where you got COVID? Yes, my granddaughter had gotten sick and it just went through one and, you know, everybody seemed like a tag. Kentucky seeing its biggest COVID-19 surge yet. Cases and hospitalizations spiking sharply to levels never seen before. Deaths, too, on the rise. Hospitals everywhere just trying to keep up. It's defeating to put another person on the ventilator. It's defeating to watch a healthcare provider that I care about or myself stand at the bedside when someone dies alone. Um, it's also defeating to watch somebody else get put in a body bag. Moorhead's St. Clair Regional Medical Center is the biggest facility providing health care to 11 counties in rural northeastern Kentucky. It can't expand capacity fast enough. It's like we're at a war with this virus. And I think what we have to understand is we're not at a war with each other, whether you, you know, your beliefs and those things, it's, it's truly a war with this virus. The National Guard is helping here. A federal disaster medical assistance team is also on hand and still they need more. We right now, um, based upon our number of staff beds, we're running about 130% above capacity. 130% above capacity. That, and that's ICU beds? regular COVID units, regular patients, e uh, emergency department, everything across the board? That's correct. The hospital has created yet another COVID ICU, but doesn't have the staff to open it. So if this opened today, how quickly would these beds be filled? Within the hour. We could fill it within the hour. St. Clair is trying to keep those with COVID out of the hospital by providing monoclonal antibody treatments at home. All right, awesome. Madison Owens was fully vaccinated and still picked up the virus. It spreads like wildfire. Pretty, it's easy to get, and it doesn't matter who vaccinated or not, everybody's getting it. A nursing student, a 21-year-old, believes she picked it up at a funeral. Hospitals across the bluegrass state so full with COVID-19 patients, almost the entire system stretched to the limit. So I get really fearful when we need beds for folks who their diabetes is out of control and they need an insulin drip or, you know, they have regular old community-acquired pneumonia, we might not have a bed for them. If you come in and have a heart attack and you need an ICU bed, we probably won't have a bed for you. Just amazing. Um, they're talking about that we are at war with the virus, uh, not at war with each other, but uh, the nation uh, very split in uh, some parts with uh, over individual liberties versus public health and the right not to get uh, vaccinated, the right not to wear a mask raging across uh, the United States. And indeed, in some areas, um, uh, protesters are actually not only attacking and threatening members of school boards, but also trying to shut down sites where people are getting tested or where the vaccine is being given. I'd like to welcome back to Sojourner Truth, Dr. David Hamelstein, who is a distinguished professor of public health at the City University of New York, a lecturer in medicine at Harvard Medical School, and a primary care doctor in the Bronx. Dr. Hamelstein co-founded 
Physicians for a National Health Program, a group whose 23,000 strong members advocate for Medicare for All. Dr. David Hemmelstein, welcome back. It's been um, way too long, actually. Thanks Thank for you for joining me. us. All right. Okay, so uh, given things are now, I mean, a, a few things before we get into the, uh, the great debate and uh, the culture wars that are happening, just your assessment as to where we are now as a nation um, with fighting uh, COVID-19. Well, we're in a lot of trouble. The fight is going poorly, and um, both because of the culture wars and, frankly, the, the Trump and his legion of followers really poisoning the waters. But the, the troubles extend way, well back before then. I mean, we, we had a commercialized uh, health care system that bred um, distrust and, and neglect of people. I mean, as Nikki Giovanni said, uh, for 30 years the health care system didn't care about my diabetes. Why all of a sudden do they care about vaccinating me? And I think that's sort of indicative of you can't all of a sudden say, well, now our health care system is going to take care of people when it hasn't been for, for a generation or more. Um, we've had a weakened public health infrastructure, and you can't rebuild that on the fly. And frankly, even under the uh, Biden administration, a politicized uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. So we have, um, we're, we're fighting a very uphill battle at this point. And um, not just in the U.S., but the U.S. neglect of global health means that vaccination rates, they're too low in the U.S., but they're abysmally low in most of the uh, oppressed nations of the world that can't afford the vaccine because our pharmaceutical policy makes it un unaffordable for them. So we're breeding resistant strains of the virus all around the world by our policies saying that we're going to favor drug company profits over getting vaccines to people who need them. Right, and, and since it first spread, uh, over 4.54 million people have died with COVID-19, this according to uh, the CDC. Now um, there's this concern about the spreading Delta variant of the virus. And the seven-day average of new cases on Monday, September 6th, this past Labor Day, was more than 300% than Labor Day of 2021. Uh, this according to new data from Johns Hopkins uh, University. And now, uh, Dr. Himmelstein, there is a concern about children who represent more than a quarter, an estimated 26.8% of weekly COVID-19 uh, cases uh, nationwide. Uh, so, you know, a lot of us had hoped that we certainly would be in a different place right now, particularly vulnerable. I mean, we hear about children, and of course, with schools reopening, there's a lot of uh, concern around that. And uh, President uh, Biden today, apparently he will announce that all federal workers must be vaccinated with no option uh, for testing. Uh, L.A. Unified School District, one of the largest in the nation, uh, they apparently are going to be meeting later today to discuss the, uh, you know, mandatory vaccines for teachers and also for staff, and I imagine for students who are old enough to get the vaccine. 
Um, your thoughts on this, because in that last clip, you heard the clip we just played, someone saying, well, I was vaccinated and I got it anyway. It's getting everybody. And, uh, you know, you're hearing that from people who are unvaccinated. And for example, we know about the red states, but there are also red areas in places like California. For example, in San Bernardino County, some of those counties, San Bernardino and California in 29 Palms, for example, only 28% of the population are vaccinated. Uh, Dr. Himmelstein. Well, uh, I mean, we, we do know that there are breakthrough infections that people who uh, get vaccinated um, can still get infected. But we also know that when they do get infected with the virus, it's much more likely to be a mild case and, and very rarely um, ends up in the ICU or, or gravely ill. So the vaccine isn't perfect, but it, it's a, a whole lot better than not being vaccinated. And those are the messages we need to, to get across. But we, we also need the public health measures that um, we're starting to, to contain the virus, at least partially, um, before the vaccine w was uh, uh, was developed. So as you said, uh, a year ago, Labor Day, we had only a third as many cases, and that was because people were wearing masks and practicing social distancing, and um, we weren't having mass gatherings. You know, I, I saw this past weekend um, 107,000 people in a football stadium in Michigan singing the fight song of that university at the top of their lungs. Well, that's um, that's danger. E even in an outdoor setting, getting people packed close together, singing, that, that's a way to spread the virus. And we need to, to do sensible things in our society in addition to being vaccinated. And frankly, you know, the, the vaccine mandates, we've had vaccine mandates in our country for generations. I mean, a student can't register for school in most states in this country um, without having had the measles vaccine and, and uh, other vaccines. And healthcare workers have long been required to, to be vaccinated against a whole variety of diseases. So um, vaccine mandates are nothing new. Um, what's new is the culture wars around the vaccine mandates. And um, frankly, the, the sense of the American people that the healthcare system hasn't taken care of them for many years, and all of a sudden um, they're supposed to react differently to a, a commercialized, profit-driven healthcare system, which um, for this one thing, vaccinating people, we're saying, well, there's an exception, that one's free. But the polls show that actually even a lot of Americans uh, are skeptical that the vaccine is really free. Yeah, and in fact, um, I've I've heard I've read some things about insurance that we're now going to begin uh, charging uh, to, for the vaccine. So we'll see how all of this uh, plays out. Now, you know, I know uh, some people who are who are good people who are vehemently opposed uh, to the vaccine. I mean, there is uh, the vaccines, they're, they're dangerous to people. Folks who, uh, women who are pregnant are, you know, worried about it. Uh, I even read something about saying, well, it for women, it makes your period um, worse than it is. 
all kinds of stories floating around and people don't quite know what to believe and what not to believe. And then, of course, um, among communities of color, given the history that you refer to and racism generally in healthcare, and you refer to Nikki Giovanni's uh, comment, there is that general mistrust that maybe um, this whole thing is just an experiment, <laughs> you know, a kind of an ethnic cleansing of sorts going. I mean, it's, it's really surprising in, in some ways and in other ways not how many people really believe this sort of thing. And then there's the Mu variant, perhaps you would say a bit about that, and then um, the speculation that generally uh, we're just going to have to live with COVID, that it's not going to go anywhere, and that perhaps like the flu, one would need vaccines on a yearly basis. So there's the controversy you mentioned about the booster shot, for example, where you have countries in the global south struggling, who can't get their hands on vaccines like on the continent of Africa, some parts of the Caribbean region, etc. And here in the United States, you have not only people refusing to get vac uh, vaccinated, but then um, who is saying, the World Health Organization is saying, look, don't start these booster shots until uh, more people in other parts of the world are vaccinated. Any thoughts on any of this, uh, Dr. Himmelstein? Yeah, I have thoughts on a lot of it. I mean, on the last point, you know, it's clear that if we just said patents don't apply here, the drug companies can't hold us hostage, um, we could produce enough vaccine to actually vaccinate people around the world. So it's, it's actually an artificially induced shortage of vaccine, and it's um, to boost the profits of insurance companies. The estimate is with a $25 billion investment, we could produce as much vaccine as, as is needed to vaccinate everybody in the world. So um, the, the commercial gain is what's driving the vaccine shortage and, and not any um, naturally uh, occurring vaccine limitations. But on the, the concerns about the vaccine, I mean, there are real side effects of the vaccine, as there are with anything that we do in healthcare, And we need to um, try and, and uh, address those fears and real concerns. Uh, the, the issue is that the, the problem of not getting the vaccine, the side effects of not getting the vaccine, the risks um, from not getting the vaccine are, in fact, we now know quite surely much, much bigger than the risks from getting the vaccine. Even for pregnant women, we now know that. So there's a, a raft of of misinformation that's circulating, much of it um, not just sort of from well-meaning folks, but clearly from malevolent forces that um, are associated with the the, um, the worst elements of our society, Trump and, and his ilk. So that's a, an issue. And, of course, the racism that has pervaded our society for 400 years is um, coming home to roost in a way. I mean, I, one of my colleagues at a, a Boston hospital, the nursing assistant who works for him, said, said to him, she's not, doesn't want to get the vaccine because they give black people a different vaccine than they give white people, just like they take um, different pills out of the bins when, when black people go to the pharmacy as compared to white people. So um, th those things we don't think are true, but they're founded in real histories of racism and, and 
real treatment uh, that black people have endured for 400 years in this country. So um, we need to have a very vigorous anti-racist effort as part of the, the uh, addressing COVID in our country. I, I think it is looking like we are going to be dealing with COVID for a long time to come if we can get vaccination that's more widespread. It, it may end up something like the flu in terms of the number of people who get really sick and um, die from it. But at this point, it's much worse than the flu. We don't know at this point whether a third booster shot would be a long-term um, uh, protection against COVID or whether we'd need to have more booster shots beyond that. Some of the immunologists are telling us they think a, a third shot would likely cause long-term immunity, but we don't know that. But the other thing that, that we do know is that as long as millions and millions of people are getting infected with this virus without being vaccinated, we're essentially setting up a situation for additional mutations to occur that are likely to eventually be more and more resistant to to the vaccine. So you referred to the mu variant. We don't have a lot of information about it at this point. It's an, a variant of concern, but we don't really know how serious it's going to be. But we can confidently predict that eventually, if we don't vaccinate people in the global south and in, and in the Caribbean um, in very large numbers, that that will be a pool of people who will then be sick and, and eventually mutations will develop there and elsewhere in the world that will come back to haunt us. So fighting this globally is part of fighting it locally as well. Right. And, and just finally, I mean, um, you know, I'm hearing from your friends and family, a lot of people concerned. A number of us kind of went into lockdown mode, right, in the um, initial months of, of COVID. And then it seemed as though with the cases going down and deaths going down and uh, various measures being lifted, uh, people kind of, you know, got okay with going out, going out to eat again and going out and you know, being interacting with with friends and family, and now particularly with older people, because still you see people 65 and older are the ones that are getting sicker. Even though there's an increase in children, we're seeing and the concern about about children. So a lot of people are trying to figure out. Well, look, do you know if you are of a certain age, do you need to go back in a, a kind of uh, sort of lockdown again or not. You know, people are trying to decide, well, should I go out to any large events where there are going to be a number of people or is that too risky or what? Any particular advice now that you would give to people who are really trying to wrap their heads around this and measures that people should take? Dr. Hemmings. Yeah, well, I, I thought, frankly, from the outset that the CDC's relaxation of their advice about uh, social distancing and masking was ill-considered, that they were premature in doing that. And we were saying that with our friends right right when they first said, gee, you don't need to, to mask and you can start going out and doing all these things again. I think at this point, particularly for older people or people with compromised immune systems, 
um, getting together in small groups with people who are vaccinated, probably okay. Getting large groups and in settings where you don't know the vaccination status of people, particularly indoors, really probably um, to be avoided at this point. Right. And and just finally, I know that your daughter has worked with, um, uh, you know, uh, COVID patients, et cetera. So just finally, people may be wondering how you are doing, how how she is doing. We know that there's a lot of pressure, a lot of burnout but on people like yourselves who are, uh, you know, right on the front lines uh, with this uh, COVID-19. Um, I'm fine. My, my daughter has weathered it fine as well. And actually, um, my younger daughter is now working as a resident in Los Angeles at one of the big hospitals there as well. And, and she's doing fine as well. Both of them are, are involved in COVID care, but have thankfully um, both been vaccinated and both remain healthy. All righty. Well, we hope, certainly hope it continues to be that way. Thank you. It seems so many members of your family are, you know, really involved in doing this kind of, of, of public service. We appreciate you. We appreciate you taking the time uh, to join us. And we'll have you back again soon. We were kind of in a, a rather extended uh, funder drive. So we haven't really been covering um, the COVID-19 as much as we would like to. But we certainly are going to be getting back to that as uh, alarm continuing to grow around this. Dr. David Hemmelstein, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. I wish you didn't have to cover it anymore in the future. Yeah, yeah, wouldn't that be wonderful? Okay. Um, we. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We're going to take a short station break. And coming up, um, Anne Peterman, Executive Director of the Global Justice Ecology Project, joins us for our weekly Earth Watch. We are in a climate catastrophe, in case you haven't noticed. And also, um, law professor and attorney Marjorie Cohn will join us to uh, break down for us the growing threat to the reproductive rights of women. Stay with us, we'll be right back. And we are blessed to hear the healing song by Lakota Peyote. We could all use some healing uh, right at this moment. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us on Facebook. And uh, check out our website at sotrueradio.org. 
and our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. We're also worldwide and nationwide on SoundCloud 24-7. And we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in the Bronx, New York. I think for some reason the Bronx, New York this past week uh, won out other cities in terms of the number of listeners, several thousand there. And internationally, we want to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners Actually, in the Russian Federation, there seems to be a, a kind of a loyal following there. And uh, so we want to thank all of our SoundCloud listeners. We are now going to turn our attention to the environmental catastrophe. And um, here on Sojourner Truth, uh, since 2009, I think, we have been partnering with the Global Justice Ecology Project for our weekly Earth Minute, as well as our weekly Earth Watch, understanding that this crisis back then uh, is one of great concern and a growing concern. A statement released on September 8th, 2021 by multiple non-governmental organizations warns of the ecological and social harm of using genetically engineered trees and false solution climate mitigation schemes. We're going to be uh, discussing that. But right now, let us go to the Washington Post clip, if we could pull that up, on climate disasters straining our mental health. If we can go to that uh, clip right now, and part of it is that people, especially now after Hurricane Ida, the devastation in Louisiana and also on the East Coast, if you didn't believe that there is climate change happening and a climate catastrophe going on, a lot of people are rethinking it. And then uh, people also getting very worried about it and very frustrated about it. And of course, in progressive movements, we've always said, uh, don't mourn, organize. But let us go now uh, to that clip on climate disasters training our mental health. We all know this feeling. The guilt when we see the starving polar bears. Or the creeping dread when we hear about the latest wildfires. That overall anxiety we experience when we face climate change. 67% of Americans are somewhat or extremely anxious about the impacts of climate change. What do we want? Climate action! And 65% of Americans think we aren't doing enough to fight it. Anxiety is useful. It tells us that there's something that we need to be paying attention to, something we need to be reacting to. This is Dr. Susan Clayton. She's been conducting research in conservation psychology for over 30 years. For most people, it's just going to be, you know, one more thing to worry about. But for a few people, it might be... um, the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of uh, leading to some real mental distress. The United Nations has called climate change the defining issue of our time. Current research shows that exposure to media representations of climate change can result in long-term anxiety or depression with feelings of guilt and hopelessness. You don't have to directly experience those effects. You don't have to live through the extreme storm, um, you know, or lose your house. It's just knowing that climate change is happening is anxiety producing. These feelings leave us less likely to act against climate change, feeding into a cycle of further despair and inaction. Fear-based messaging only gets you so far. This is Dr. Ed Maybach. He heads up a team focused on finding the best ways 
to increase public understanding of climate change. The, the social science behind it suggests that fear is helpful. It's a necessary precondition for people to to think about the issue. But if you feel these emotions, you feel like nobody around you cares about the issue, um, then you just kind of go inward and, and, and uh, you know, suffer with those emotions. All righty. Well, we certainly, uh, Ann Peterman, don't want people uh, going inward and not taking action. And of course, Ann Peterman, an executive director of the Global Justice Ecology Project. She's been working on issues related to protecting forests and defending the rights of indigenous people since 1990 and co-founded the first global campaign against genetically engineered trees in 2000. In the years since, she has presented the social and ecological dangers of genetically engineered trees at conferences with community groups and at the United Nations and other international arena on five continents. She currently coordinates the campaign to stop GE trees, which she co-founded in 2014. And Peterman, welcome back. Thank you so much, Margaret. Okay, so just uh, listening um, to that particular clip and the fact that uh, people, some people get so worried, they get worried into inaction. One would hope they get worried into action, realizing that we have got to do something. But Ann Peterman, you have been on this case for, for so long and in terms of protecting uh, forests, opposing genetically engineered trees and what you call the false solutions uh, to the climate crisis. So uh, let us know your thoughts on the interrelationship then in protecting uh, forests and opposing GE trees with the work that we have to do uh, for the environment. And Peterman. Sure. Yeah, I, I appreciate the clips that you just played about, you know, people feeling anxiety. And certainly we've seen in the media over the last year a, a massive increase in the coverage of climate-related issues and mentioning climate change. And it's interesting to think of that, you know, driving this anxiety in people. What it's also doing, I feel, is opening the door to these very dangerous techno-false solutions that are designed not really to address the climate problem, but to enable business as usual. So there's obviously, you know, billions of dollars, trillions of dollars um, invested in maintaining business as usual, you know, beyond all natural limits. I think, you know, we're pretty clear that capitalism is designed to um, grow and grow and grow and on a finite planet. That just doesn't work, and climate change is a very clear result of that pathological, you know, economic system. So, you know, what, what we're working on specifically is this techno fix um, under the umbrella of genetically engineered tree research, which is both engineering trees. When, when we say genetically engineering, we're not talking about hybridization. We're talking about laboratory experiments that use transgenic DNA from other species and put them into trees or that use very violating um, technologies like CRISPR or gene editing to get in there and, you know, monkey around with the DNA of the trees to make them do things they could never do in nature. So grow even faster, you know, uh, rates that are not sustainable for trees normally, um, or have altered lignin, lignin being the, the substance in a tree that makes it stand strong and resist wind and animal browsing and so forth and so on, disease. 
but, but gets in the way of turning the wood into bioplastics or biochemicals or bio, biofuels. Um, so these are the things that we're looking at. What are the impacts of this kind of violation of the very fundamental DNA of the tree, and what can we do to stop it? So I, I understand people's anxiety about these issues, and the best way to deal with that kind of anxiety is to get involved. And we are definitely you know, looking for people who want to get involved and help with this issue because it's one of those things that we have huge numbers of people already on board you know, opposing genetically engineered trees across the world. And, you know, the more the merrier. I mean, you know, we need as many people as possible because we're up against giant companies like Monsanto and International Paper. Right. And the thing also, you know, particularly now with the Delta variant uh, going in and more discussion also about income inequality, uh, we're hearing and also the environmental impact of these uh, these heat waves that are happening, particularly along the West Coast, right, and the fires, et cetera. But um, it's come out that people who live in inner city areas, that the temperatures tend to be at least uh, 10 degrees higher than people who live in other areas. And they're saying it has to do with the amount of concrete on the ground and also the lack of trees. So, you know, it, 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 you, you could see that it wouldn't be a, a difficult leap for people to say, yeah, you see that? We need more trees in impoverished areas. So the whole idea of using uh, GE trees could be a solution, but it's not. I mean, it's not a solution for the forest. It's also not a solution uh, for getting trees into uh, our communities either. And Peterman, your thoughts? Well, absolutely. I mean, certainly these, this heat sink problem and the need to plant more trees in urban areas is, is well established and absolutely something that needs to be addressed. But but as you pointed out, genetically engineered trees are not the way to go. And that's not what the genetically engineered tree industry is looking at. I mean, they're looking at large-scale industrial plantations. They want to have GE trees in places like Brazil and South Africa, you know, where they can um, dominate the landscape with their faster-growing, herbicide-tolerant, insect-killing, genetically engineered trees that will exist on land that was formerly indigenous people's land that was formerly native forest land. Um, you know, this is the trend that has been well established by the UN and other agencies over decades, that when industrial plantations move in, people are displaced and forest is destroyed. So this is the problem that we're looking at. And now we're having to deal with an additional issue, which is this, uh, the industry has figured out that people don't like, they, they react negatively to those uses of genetically engineered trees. So now they're talking about GE trees for quote-unquote conservation and positive things, you know. So we're going to restore species that have been damaged by disease um, in the forest. But the fact of the matter is they have no idea what these trees will do in 10, 20, 50, 100 years if they are allowed back into forest ecosystems. They don't have any idea. They've only been working on these things for you know, literally a few years um, outside of a laboratory, and they're saying, oh, we know exactly what these will do, and so let's put them out in the forest to spread, you know, by themselves wherever they want. Um, it's, it's, it's incredibly uh, egotistical and um, irresponsible 
for of what they're p- trying to do, which is why we're working so hard to stop that. But yes, they are uh, definitely uh, using people's. They're definitely using people's um, good side to try to push this very bad idea. Right, and for people who want to get involved in the your campaign to stop these genetically engineered trees and to learn more about the Global Justice Ecology Project, what should they do, Ann Peterman? Sure. We just put out a brand-new statement about GE trees and climate change and, and the, uh, the details of what I'm talking about, which can be found on the campaign's website, which is stopgetrees.org. So that's a easy one to remember. StopGETrees.org. You can find ways to plug in, ways to get involved, and lots more information. Right. And thank you so much for all of your work over these years uh, bringing these issues to the Sojourner Truth audience. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Ann Peterman. Thank you. All righty. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And what I'd like to do right now is to welcome Marjorie Cohn, Professor Emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law, where she taught for a few decades, former president of the National Lawyers Guild, criminal defense attorney, legal scholar, political analyst, who is a very, very prolific uh, writer. You could see her columns in, in Truth Out, Huffington Post, uh, Truth Dig, and, and others. She's also been uh, doing analysis on television. So Marjorie, welcome back, and, and what you're going to do for us is to just break down what the heck just happened in terms of women's reproductive rights in, in Texas. The Supreme Court seemed to let it go. The the whole whistleblower site. Just give us your analysis about all of this What and, and what it really means in the larger picture. Okay, Margaret. Well, um, Trump's installation of three radical right-wing justices who want to overturn Roe v. Wade is paying off, um, because in a five-to-four vote, with actually Roberts joining the three liberals, uh, but the five radical right-wingers voted to allow Texas's new law, the so-called Heartbeat Act, to go into effect, even though they haven't had the benefit of lower courts to weigh in. They haven't had briefing. They haven't had oral arguments. They just allowed this to happen. And this law, it's called SB 8, bans all abortions after physicians detect or should have detected cardiac activity. That generally occurs at six weeks of pregnancy when most women don't even know they're pregnant. And what this does is to given very strong indication that next term, which begins in October, the Supreme Court is poised to overturn Roe v. Wade. There's a Mississippi case that asks them to do just that, and the Mississippi law uh, bans abortion after 15 weeks, and uh, that would open the floodgates to other states criminalizing abortion. What this does, this law, is to deputize private people in Texas to act as vigilantes to sue abortion providers and those who aid and abet them. Um, aider and abetter is, could be anybody. It could be a doctor, nurse, friends, spouses, parents, um, domestic violence counselors, clergy members, Uber drivers, Lyft drivers. They don't even have to know that they're aiding and abetting a woman in getting an abortion. The Uber driver just has to know that he is dropping a woman off at a, a place. And if these defendants who are sued under this law win, 
I'm sorry, if the plaintiffs win, the defendants have to pay a $10,000 bounty plus attorney's fees. So basically what Texas is doing is bribing its residents to sue people who get abortions. Um, and um, the, uh, <clears throat> the, the Sotomayor, in her dissent, um, said the court's order is stunning. A majority of justices have opted to bury their heads in the sand. Um, and another byproduct of this law, a horrific byproduct, is that it's not going to prevent abortion. It's going to prevent safe abortions. Women are going to continue to get abortions. And by the way, there's no exception in this Texas law for rape or incest. Um, but rich women who can afford to fly to California to get an abortion will have safe abortions. But poor women who cannot will be relegated to the, the pre-Roe versus Wade days, the back alley coat hanger abortions. Now, um, on Friday, um, an Austin judge, a judge in Austin, Texas, issued a temporary restraining order in favor of Planned Parenthood and against the Texas right to life, so-called, um, and, uh, and, and set September 13th for a hearing on a preliminary injunction. That means that no, uh, no one, Texas right to life cannot sue Planned Parenthood under this new SB 8. Um, also, um, right to life, this this uh, Texas right to life, and, and I say right to life advisedly because these people are opposed to um, to taking the life of a fetus, but once the baby's born, uh, they are not right to life. They're not right to life in terms of health care, in terms of um, education, etc., and they don't really care about the life of the woman because, say, a 13-year-old is raped um, and, uh, and is forced to have an abortion, that could be life-threatening. Um, and also, this uh, so-called Texas Right to Life group had to close their website after their GoDaddy host said that it violated the terms of service, collecting information on someone without consent. Now, uh, um, Biden has come out with a very strong statement opposed to SB 8, and Merrick Garland, the attorney general, um, who ironically would be on the Supreme Court in this case, may well have gone the other way uh, if he had uh, been taken his seat as Obama appointed him, uh, which Mitch McConnell prevented, of course. Uh, but he has uh, indicated that there are a couple of federal statutes. Well, he hasn't, but other people have suggested that the Department of Justice bring a lawsuit under um, federal civil rights laws, Section 242, which makes it a crime for anybody under color of law, that means anybody on, on the basis of the government, on behalf of the government, to deprive individuals of constitutional rights. And Roe v. Wade is a constitutional decision. <clears throat> the right to abortion is a constitutional right. And then Section 241 um, makes it a serious crime for two or more persons to deprive someone of their constitutional rights. There's also, and this is something that Garland has mentioned, the FACE Act, Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act, which prohibits the use or threat of force and physical instruction, obstruction that injures, intimidates, or interferes with someone trying to um, get reproductive services. So a clinic that does abortions, uh, if they're under attack, that would be a violation of the FACE Act. 
so there are there is some pushback, but this is a very ominous signal, Margaret, going forward that uh, the Supreme Court is poised to upend uh, decades of the of Roe v. Wade, and this is exactly what Trump intended and what the right wingers uh, have intended. But uh, it's going to end up um, hurting women and uh, jeopardizing their lives and, of course, um, denial of the constitutional right to have control over your own body. Right, and here you see uh, Marjorie in, in the U.S. taking that backward step, of course, for our younger uh, audience uh, members in 1973, the landmark Roe versus Wade decision of the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the U.S. Constitution protects a pregnant woman's freedom to choose to have an abortion without excessive government restriction. And, and Marjorie, just very quickly, we see in neighboring Mexico, the country's Supreme Court there unanimously voted to decriminalize abortion on Tuesday, September the 7th. So that could be another place. I mean, uh, again, it's going to be a, a rich-poor divide because, as you say, women who could travel to California or perhaps to Mexico um, for their right to choose, but an impoverished woman not in that same position. I mean, you saw even in Louisiana and Ida, you had impoverished people who couldn't even didn't even have the resources to evacuate. So uh, just a quick uh, final thought uh, from you and also uh, Marjorie Cohn, where can we look to see some of your latest writing? Yes, well, I, I also want to indicate that about 85 to 90 percent of women in Texas who have abortions are at least six weeks into their pregnancy, which means that this law will prohibit nearly all abortions in Texas. Yeah. And uh, my, my uh, articles, et cetera, are collected at MarjorieCohn.com and also uh, TruthOut.org. Right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We'll have you back as your schedule allows. We appreciate you. Thank you for breaking this down for us. All right. Thank you so much, Margaret. All righty. We are out of time today. Show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank the Sojourner Truth team, our assistant producer, Romero Funes, our audio engineer today, Kiana Williams. If you'd like a copy of today's show, contact the Pacifica Radio archives at 1-800-735-0230. Thank you for listening. And you all, please remember to stay safe.